This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another week of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. We got my boy, John, from Flowdatix, which he just told me that a lot of people mess up the name for Flowdatix. Apparently, you know, I'm just kind of special and I got it right the first time, but you, you, you nailed it. <laughs> I you thought it was it. pretty, pretty easy, but yeah. uh, apparently, you know, there's a way to butcher everything. So dude, appreciate you being uh, here down in Houston with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We're excited to, to talk about it. Yeah, man. So what brought you to town? What are you doing in town? You got some, some client meetings or? No. Yeah. I mean, so we actually subleased some space in Katy, not too far away for oh, some cool. of the meters. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got space here. Um, Where's that at then- specifically? I live in Katy. It's off Vanderwilt. Okay. Not sure so where that's at. I'm not a local, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like, I can't help you out either. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, awesome. uh, I guess, kind of central Katy. Okay, know. cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you're from uh, you're from Colorado. Yep. Um, where at specifically? So I grew up in Morrison, so kind of the Morrison. west side of Denver. Yeah. Yep. Right by Red Rocks Amphitheater. Yeah. Uh, kind of right in there. Awesome. And you're a mines alumni. Correct. Um, petroleum yep. engineer. So tell me. You know what is Flowdatix? Which I'm gonna give a plug here. Flowdatix is uh, presenting at um, Energy Tech Night in Midland coming up. I don't know if this podcast will be out by then. I'll make sure it's out by then. Okay, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Uh, so tell us just like real quick. You know the two minute pitch on what Flowdatix is and what y'all do. Yeah, so really simple. We we make one product and that's a multi phase flow meter. Uh, so a multi phase flow meter is really just a meter to measure multiple phases of fluids in without having to separate them out. Yeah. Um, so measuring oil, gas, water in a pipe, that's kind of our specialty, what we do. Um, I think kind of what makes us unique other relative to other multi-phase flow meters, because there's a there's a number of them out there. I think in the US market, a lot of people have tried them, haven't necessarily loved them. There's a lot of maintenance, a lot of handling uh, that comes with it. Yeah. So a lot of existing meters have a nuclear source uh, which means you've got to do some of the permitting, the handling to to deal with that type of material. Yeah, so you have a low radiation source that's actually sitting inside the meter. That's interesting. Exactly. So for us, we don't have a nuclear source. Um, so it makes it a lot easier from a handling, you know, getting on a well site, you don't have to do any of the Yeah, permitting. you want to hear a funny story yeah. about nuclear sources. Um, so back in, I want to call it 2011 or 2012, I used to run wireline and we had to handle yep. um, nuclear sources. Um for when we logged wells and Halliburton shop was right next to us as well. And Halliburton wireline hands were out one day. And, you know, when you transport your source and wireline, I mean, very um, tight on the security, you know, it's kept in a bunker. You have to go get it from a bunker. You have to put it in what's called a pig and it's this big steel container. Then that pig has to be, you know, double locked, has to be chained to the pickup. Like, yep, you have to, I mean, go through this checklist to make sure that that uh, radiation source isn't lost. And well, anyways, these guys are driving back from a location and they lose their source. They get to the <laughs> shop and they don't have it. ATF comes in, oh, yeah. uh, DEA, I mean, all the feds come in and they've got helicopters, they've got planes. Probably shut down this. highways. Yeah, like yeah. crazy response. They put the wireline hands in jail for a couple of weeks while they look for this thing. Wow. Anyways, some old boy, some pumper, 
thinks that he finds some random bolt on a lease, throws it in the back of his pickup, and he's driving around for two weeks with this radiation source in the back. And so, how they how they uh, find it? Uh, so they ended. I mean, it kind of became a big deal with like a lot of press and media. Yep. And that guy was like, "Oh, I think I have that in the back of my in the back of my pickup." <laughs> he truck. just saw a new, like a news <laughs> yeah, story. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. saw a news story, and it's like I picked that up. And so, I anyways, it. It, it it's a pain, right? Having to yeah. deal deal with those. Things. Yeah, and it's a it's a safety risk i mean for guys and, and a security risk too i think you know most of the time it's it's trace amounts but if somebody got a hold of it knew what to that, do with that's it, that's what the most ridiculous thing is to me is yeah. like i would pick these things up with my hand and i haven't turned into a ninja <laughs> turtle yet i right. mean yeah. it's super um low trace and, i think it's still. it's more like the potential of what it could be used for yeah a lot of times is maybe the bigger yeah concern. yeah um, doesn't matter regardless it's heavily regulated and exactly. uh tons of security around it and so just a ton of um you know permanent yeah it's just a, it's just a pain to yep. operate um so we don't have a nuclear source and then we also the meter is based um pretty much fully on tomography it's like electromagnetic sensors that are able to image inside the pipe okay um so one of the cool things our meter can do relative to what else is out there is we can actually create like a 3D time lapse of the fluids in the pipe, so you can oh, see wow. oil, gas, water flowing. You know, if there's gas slugs, I want to I want to dive into this that. tomography. Yeah. I'm not familiar sure. with that, and so dive in and unpack this a little bit. Um, and understand you're sitting across from the table from someone that doesn't know what you're talking about. So try to break it down easily. Sure. But um, really cool that you can have this 3D model to actually see, um, you know, the volume of fluid, and you know whether it's um, oil or water, whatever it may be, but how does that actually work in layman's terms? Yeah, I think the simplest way to explain it is it's it's similar to uh, taking an MRI of a cross section of the pipe. Okay. So there's electromagnetic sensors that are basically measuring different, you know, whether it's change in magnetic field or conductivity of fluids going through the pipe, mm -hmm. and basically able to take those cross sections and say, okay, this pixel is oil, this pixel is gas, this pixel is water. Interesting. And then you can essentially create like a, a stack of those cross sections yeah. to create a video. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that like algorithm driven to take all of those, uh, yeah. essentially a screenshot and, you know, kind of compress all of these together? Or? 100%. So there's, there are some other meters out there that use tomography. I think the biggest, um, you know, piece of secret sauce really is the fact that we're using a few different types of sensors and then we have the software to tie them all together. Yeah. To accurately compute rates, uh, oil, gas, water. Yeah. And different sensors work better in different um, flow conditions. Yeah. So when oil is a continuous phase or water is continuous phase, those have different like conductive properties. And mm. so different sensors tend to work better um in those different flow regimes so if i'm hearing this correctly you know there's both a hardware component and a software component yep. um to y'all's to y'all's business and you know the software component is like hey look you know you can have this hardware and these sensors but you need software to actually tie it all together and, and get actionable information from it yeah 100 i mean the the software is really the only thing that's going to take this raw signal data which is useless kind of on its own and the software is really what's taking those raw signals and saying, okay, like I go from a, you know, a magnetic field measurement to oil flow rate. 
yeah. there's a lot of math that gets done along the way to, yeah. to do that. So, so the historical traditional way of metering fluids, can you explain how that's been done before these uh, multi-phase uh, yeah. meters were, were built? Sure. So um, before multi-phase, I mean, even today, like most of, if you go to a well site in Colorado or Texas or wherever, um, they may be set up a little differently, but the general concept is you have a separator and then you have something like a Coriolis meter for oil, uh, a turbine or a Coriolis for water, and then something like an orifice meter to measure gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that setup is, that's what's widely accepted. Some people have, you know, in Colorado, they separate every well most of the time on yeah. new pads. So let's talk about that a little bit. You yeah. Know, um, a lot of people that listen to the show, there's a lot of production engineers that, yep. you know, this was probably too basic uh, for them. They know what a separator is, sure. but I'm um, interested in unpacking it a little bit for someone that may not be uh, familiar with production um, surface equipment. Yep. And so you talk about the separator and that's where all of your fluids go into and then essentially get sorted out. Um, yeah, exactly. So the stream, you know, off the well, the well is basically producing oil, gas, and water all commingled together. Mm-hmm. That's piped to the piece of equipment called the separator. And the separator is kind of basically taking those three phases and pulling them out into separate streams. So one pipe goes in the front of the separator, the back end of the separator, you're going to have three flow lines. Yeah. One for oil, one for water, one for gas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, which, you know, just based off of physics, I mean, oil, everyone knows that, you know, oil and water uh, doesn't yeah. mix. And so that's how your separator works in, internally. Exactly. Yeah. So the oil is usually a little bit lighter than your water. So oil is kind of going to the top of the liquids and then yeah. gas is usually coming out of the top of the separator. Yeah. Um, so what I'm trying to illustrate there is that it's a very mechanical process. Right. You know, a separator is just kind of dummy iron, um, right. essentially. And so, um, yeah, it's funny. I don't know why this got brought up in my mind when you're just like, Oh, an oil and gas well, you know, you produce oil and, and gas and, and water and, um, I used to own these oil wells up in Oklahoma and one of my wells they'd do two barrels of oil a day and 250 of water. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was a water well that happened to produce a little bit of yeah, oil. There's a lot of those out there. There's yeah. a lot of those out there for sure. And so I don't know yeah. why that, I just kind of got like NAM flashbacks for some reason when you said that, but, um, so that's super interesting. When did, um, uh, and maybe let's talk about your background a little bit before sure. I go, uh, I'm super, I'm super intrigued by this and curious about it. But, yeah. um, like I said, you went to mines, um, yep. and then what, what Take after mines? Yeah. So I graduated, uh, May of 2016. So oil price was about $30 a barrel. It's kind of the bottom of the, the last downturn prior to COVID. And, um, I had worked for PDC energy in Denver yeah. kind of through school. Yeah. Thought that was kind of my career path was go work for those guys. What but assets they, did you did you work with? I did some work for PDC up in Ohio. Yeah. Okay. So I spent um, two summers on the DJ stuff and then one summer um, in the Ohio, like their Utica nice. stuff. Was that production or drilling and completion? Yeah, I was, or? the Ohio stuff was kind of, it was really more like a, um, I don't know what they call it, like completion design optimization, okay. I guess. So looking at different designs, seeing what the impact was to production and figuring yeah. out what we should do next. Got you. Um, so spent, yeah, I probably spent a, a summer and then uh, during the school year working on that Ohio asset. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I ran some expandable casing up there. I think it was open hole liner that got stuck okay. um, drilling. And so yep. 
it's never a good time when I'm coming on location because <laughs> you're already in a shit mess. So I'm right. never, I'm never getting called out unless it's yeah, a bad and, time. But and I think I can't remember what year they sold the asset. But the tricky thing for them, I mean, most of that area is really like a gas play. Yeah, and, yeah. And they were kind of in an oilier area, and I think hoping it was going to be more of a liquids play. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a tight window. I mean, the Utica goes from dry gas to black oil, like. Yeah. 30 yeah. 40 miles something like that yeah. east to west yeah. so yeah um so you yeah. um uh, so at PDC and then um you said you graduated in what year uh may of 2016 okay cool yeah, yeah. um actually that's probably about the time that i was um up and and we may have crossed paths yeah we might have might have yeah. crossed paths somehow but um so what after yeah uh, so PDC? um so may of 2016 i graduated they kind of said hey you know we got a full-time offer for you, just not yet. Hold off. Um, but I was graduating, needed to pay the bills. Yeah, so yeah. Like, started, started well, looking around. can't hold around. off too long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so started looking around, found a, a group that had raised money to invest in oil field service companies um, that was looking to hire an engineer and then kind of train them to be an analyst. Yeah. Um, so really how to value a company, you know, how to model the growth of that company and how to how to create an exit. Yeah. Um, so I did that for five years and, and really just kind of, Started out doing the modeling, and then over time, as I got to understand how how business works, how um, how you create equity value, got more and more involved with helping the portfolio companies, whether it was digital kind of strategy, implementing new tech to help you know their their base business. Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. Very cool. And then I left. Um, I guess it would have been March of twenty one. And joined a, a CNI solar developer in okay. a corporate development role. So, oh, interesting. Kind of a total pivot. So you go from um, oil and gas to solar, to solar development. Yeah, and it was um, a solar developer backed by NCAP. So in my yeah. head, I was kind of thinking, okay, this is like, you know, a traditional oil and gas fund. Yeah. Maybe I'll see what this is about. And where were the uh, Where were the assets at? So they, um, the company was based in Boulder, okay. Colorado. Yeah. Um, but the they had assets, I guess, Boulder and. Um, Boston, but they acquired a company in LA and then acquired a company, um, in New York. Okay. And then had a few assets in Colorado at the time when I was there, but really my job in corporate development was look at developers around the country, uh, see if they have any interest in joining our platform. Yeah. Uh, we had, they had a, a really good software platform that made it easy to, you could give them a hundred addresses and they could say, okay, you know, these 10 properties have the best potential yeah. for solar economics. Yeah. Um, so y'all weren't actually developing solar assets? So they had the software was... and then they were saying, okay, you know, now we actually have the balance sheet from NCAP. Oh, I got to go you. Develop no, these I got you. Understood. Yeah. So they developed and they wanted to own through the light, yeah. which a lot of developers are more like wildcatters where yeah. they're almost doing the, the, right, the permitting, the initial design work, and then they find someone with a big balance sheet and say, come buy this project for me yeah, and, and I'll yeah. go find more. Done, done the grunt work, flip it. And exactly. Then, yeah. Uh, um, which was super interesting. Definitely culture-wise was was very different than... Well, that's what I was about to ask you. I want to dive into that a little <laughs> yeah. bit because, you know, yeah. I think it's interesting when you look at, um, you know, I've drawn out this knowledge graph and kind of the social graph as well and oil and gas is at the center of it, but then you have all these adjacent energy verticals, whether yep. it's solar, wind, geothermal carbon capture you know you go down the list and yep. a lot of these adjacent energy verticals need to leverage the experience and expertise of oil and gas industry 
And, you know, you hear a lot of like, oh, you know, there's going to be jobs and renewables and things of this nature. But, you know, oil and gas is obviously um, still a big part of the world right now and will continue to be. And so breaking down these barriers and friction to allow people to um, share information with each other and work in like, hey, you know, an oil and gas guy should be able to go to a renewables company and provide value there. And so yep. tell me, talk a little bit about like that cultural dynamic, um, sure. especially being up in, you know, Colorado where it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a hotbed for divisiveness when it comes yeah. to energy. And so tell me what that experience was like. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess just the cultural difference maybe is I felt like a lot of people in the solar world are, you know, they, they believe very strongly that what they're doing is saving the planet. Uh, where oil and gas guys, for the most part, are more in the boat of, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm doing this because I like it. I like the people. I like the work. And I can make a bunch of money doing well, it. Well, that's what I was, about, um, to, I was and, about to say is like the oil and gas industry. I, I tell everyone this. It's like the oil and gas industry is one of the most capitalistic industries you'll ever meet. If they can 100%. make money underwriting solar, wind, or any other energy asset, they'll do it. Because at the end of the day, they want to make money. And, so. and it's very different economics. So that was what was cool about my role there was I saw project economics um, around the country mm -hmm. um, and kind of got a feel for, you know, one of the things that blew my mind was as a project owner, most of the guys that were owning these projects through life were still only earning, you know, 8 to 12% was maybe a, a great economic return. Where yeah. You drill a well, most guys would say, hey, we're not drilling a well unless we think we can earn 20 <laughs> yeah, yeah. 20 five percent plus jack those numbers up exactly yeah. <laughs> um but it was you know and the solar argument there would be well it's usually under a contract like a 20-year power purchase agreement and so yeah. it's a little bit more secured yeah um yeah it looks more like a bond product because you have a long ppa that goes yeah. along with it and, and that is true yeah in my mind fundamentally it's, it is more of a fixed in income product yeah um but guys can make a lot of money because of the financing options that are available mm -hmm. um so you know, when I talk about that guys earning 10 to 12%, um, costs had come down like 90% over the last decade. Yeah. So I was looking at these numbers for the first time and being an oil and gas guy, very skeptical of the economics of, of solar, um, just from what I had heard yeah. previously. Yeah. And so I look at that and say, how could guys earn 10 to 12% now? Costs have come down 90%. What were they earning 10 years ago? Um, and when you look at that, you kind of say, well... Most of these guys that own projects are buying it from developers and the developers really are spending, you know, a little bit of engineering work, kind of just doing the site procurement, like, mm -hmm. hey, you landowner, let me use your property. Yeah. Um, You're building the foundation for, yeah, exactly. 100%. Like the, kind of the dirt work aspect of it. Yeah. Right? And get yeah. it to um, NTP, notice to proceed. Yeah. And then usually sell it at that point. And really what ended up happening is what the price they could sell it for is almost like a, a goal seek for the project owner to own to earn 10 to 12%. Mm. So 10 years ago, the developers probably got paid a little bit less yeah. than they do today. But really, the project owners still earn what they were earning, and the consumer didn't necessarily. Yeah, so they're just like reverse engineering, like, hey, we need to get like that 10 to 12% for the project owner and then kind of build, you know, kind of built down from that. Exactly. So as yeah. costs came down, a lot of times the, the benefit or the beneficiaries were the developers. Yeah. More so than the long term project owners or the consumers themselves. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. really interesting. There's so much back and forth on wind and solar if it's profitable if it's not profitable there's a lot of noise out there and 
Um, you know, there's obviously renewable energy credits and things of that nature too that get thrown into the mix. And so I'm always just like super curious, like, like I want to see like real numbers from all of these deals and if it does make sense or if it doesn't, but I mean, if you're getting, you know, you know, just call it eight to 12% return. I mean, Hey, it, it, it makes money. Now, the thing that I'm interested in too is, you know, we talked about, um, you know, like the cost of materials coming down. Well, now cost of materials maybe yep. showing that it's trending up, um, yep. just simple supply and demand. Um, you look at, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like oil and gas. Like, you know, you have different tiers of rock and who chew through all the tier one rock and, um, you know, <laughs> renewables, we, yeah, we've taken, yeah, yeah. And we've taken all the low hanging fruit and renewables, yeah. um, as well. And, but the most interesting part about this to me is I was talking about this cause I had a, um, I had a tweet that, some people um, that are in renewables that are friends of mine um, had some beef with, and we talked about it, and I kind of explained my thought. But um, I said that if you look at – everyone talks about renewable energy being cheaper, but they don't take in end-to-end costs, right. like battery uh, storage or backup power generation. They only look at it at the asset level. Yep. That's like this is very similar to what oil and gas did in American Shale, where it's like, hey, we've got a 40% IRR on this well – on a half uh, cycle economic basis, if you back out <laughs> GNA and land costs, and I'm like, well, right. that's not a true representation of your 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 true cost. And when I was talking to my friends in renewables, they're like, oh, well, you know, the the asset owner, the project owner, they don't care about that. Like, they're making money. Battery storage is someone else's problem. I was like, yeah, well, you know whose problem it is? It's the end user. 100%. Because if our electricity prices are going up, and because we need to invest all this capex and battery storage, or we have um, you know, degraded reliability in the grid and blackouts because we haven't developed load balancing or transmission yet. Yep. And so that's a like real conversation that I want to have is like, Hey, all of these things need to be looked at on end to end and kind of on a, a level playing field. Yeah. 1000%. And from my perspective, um, you know, I think when I think about solar relative to natural gas or nuclear, you know, I think the biggest thing is you know, you know, you could spend hundred trillion dollars on solar in the U.S., but at nine p.m., get zero power. Yeah, um, and that's typically that's when like we're this, using a lot of like power. This duck curve out in California, one hundred percent, right? It's, I mean, just getting stupid cheap prices in yeah. the middle of the day, and then. And so I think renewables' answer has always been, "Well, we'll have batteries, and and that'll kind of fix the problem. We'll we'll charge batteries." But then you look at the, and I think. The biggest issue with renewables in general is the duplication of capital cost. Mm-hmm. So if I if I had one house and I want to power it exclusively with solar and batteries, I need enough solar to generate the power I need during the day, and also charge my battery. Mm-hmm. You know, charge my battery so at night I can use my battery. So that means you need more solar than just the solar that would technically spec you through the day. Yeah. And then when you think about your battery storage you need enough battery storage where, Hey, if it's a cloudy day, yeah, like I got to be able to generate power from yeah. that. So I'm very skeptical that we'll ever have commercial scale battery storage for energy assets. Um, I already think that electric vehicles will be pretty hard, yep. um, to, um, so that's, but you know, like I'm a huge fan of residential solar. Um, yep. like I love like one, I'm just like very anti-government at times. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> You know, fuck the man. I'm, you know, I've, got, I've got my own little microgrid here at my and house. Distributed and distributed so. generation, I think that's that's maybe the biggest push is hey, I don't I don't want to be 
um, subject to the government telling me what power I, yeah. you know, have access to. I think, you know, what's interesting is like, um, and to your point about end users kind of being the people that sometimes take the brunt of some of these choices yeah. are, you know, a market like Colorado where it's a regulated market, XL Energy or whoever the provider is, they are more or less kind of entitled to like an 8% return on their assets. So if they, you know, somebody puts solar on, on their building or community solar and all of a sudden Excel is selling less power to earn that same return on their assets, they have to charge more for the power that they do sell. Interesting. I didn't know um, that. I so it's, that. I mean, and that's yeah. always a big debate, but I think if you look yeah. at a lot of markets where there's high renewable penetration, yeah, you do usually see higher power costs and that could be, Subject to a whole bunch of variables, population yeah, there's a, density. And there's all a that. lot that can go into that. But, yeah. you know, like my thing is, is, you know, I'm like, I think that when you talk about energy, one, it's very much dependent on geographic location. Yep. Um, like you look at West Texas, hey, you got a ton of oil and gas, you got a ton of wind, you got a solar. That's what you don't have any hydro because you're in the middle of a right. desert, you know. And exactly. so, um, exactly. it's very geographically dependent, and you should use what resources you have in that area. Um, but you know, I think, um, it's like, I don't think that's a coincidence that we've had such a high penetration of wind power generation and solar power generation in Texas. And all of a sudden, you know, we're having a lot of blackouts and grid right. issues. And I just think that it's uh, a lack of proper planning and, um, scaling renewables a little bit, um, too quickly without yep. the systems to, to manage them. And so, um, but yeah, you know, the, um, I, I find sorry to kind of like go into no, this, this topic. Is, I mean, this I, is this is super interesting. I love talking to me about energy. Because, yeah, so. no, I love talking about yeah. energy too. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I think it's important because you know, I think at the end of the day, a lot of people throw around this term energy independence, and energy independence to me is it's pie in the sky. It's not a real right. thing. And really, the name of the game is having a d diverse and secure energy mix. And so that's wind, that's solar, that's oil and gas, that's nuclear, hydro, um, coal, and that's what it's um, that's what it's really about. And so solar plays a part. And yep. I just love that you were an oil and gas guy, made that crossover to solar. Now you cross back over in oil and gas. You're like, I don't give a shit. I'll, I'll go. <laughs> yeah, I'll go I mean, wherever. Yeah, definitely. Like obviously different culture, but um, in some ways they are similar. Like a solar project, you know, a lot of times it's thirty year model, similar to the way. A, a, uh, a well is a 30 year yeah. type of investment. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's just sort of a different way of thinking about the world. And they really are in the power business where oil guys are, you know, you think about oil that could be used for power. It could be used for yeah, I mean, oils, roads, yeah. whatever. Oil is used for fuels and exactly. you know, petrol. It's probably only 60% like. transport. I yeah. It's like where the numbers shake yeah. out. So yeah. Yeah. I think, um, but you know, I think like, I think that, it's an extremely interesting time to be working in energy and there's so much opportunity. You know, I was just talking about this on lunch. I was talking about it. You know, I used to talk to the SPE chapters. I still do talk to SPE chapters, but in 2020, like during COVID, you know, there's all these kids that, you know, kind of depressed, like, man, oil's negative $40. I'm a petroleum engineer that's graduating in a few months. And yep. I told them, I said, guys, I said, there's so much opportunity in the energy industry as I kind of disregard, disregard the noise, Yep. Um, disregard what you're hearing on a macro, but the crossover of talent and skill between software, between oil and gas, between renewables, it's like, you can really 
bolster up your skill set and resume by getting exposure to all of these different things and being right. the guy that can talk all of it, right? Yeah, so. and it's important. I mean, I think when you look at like public policy, energy impacts, you know, that when you talk about the end user, the consumers, like energy impacts everything you do, whether it's your home life or all the products. Yeah. Energy costs get baked into almost every product. Yeah. You know, when you think about transporting stuff um, from different countries, different states, that all gets baked into your into your product costs. So there's almost nothing more important maybe than other than water. Yeah. When you think about, you know, just everyone's everyday life in America. No, energy is yeah. at the core of life. And I don't just mean that like metaphorically, like the universe is energy is at right. the center of everything. Yeah, and they, do, like when so. they, they talk about inflation and CPI and you look at those numbers, it's like they they take them into different buckets. Energy is one of those buckets. But yeah. But energy is rolling into all the other buckets because they upstream of everything. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a energy, uh, maximalist. And so it's like at my house, like, like I want to build out this whole microgrid. I want rooftop solar. I want a Tesla, uh, battery wall. Then I want a Cummins nat gas generator (laughs) in the backyard. And I'm like, I'm never going to be out of power. <laughs> well, and I think, I think that is like, from my opinion, um, public policy decisions where they're saying, Hey, you know, we're, uh, we're not going to build any new natural gas and coal and we're only going to build, you know, wind and solar and yeah. batteries. I think a lot of times what you're going to see is you probably see slightly higher power prices. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not everywhere at geographic, yeah. you know, geography matters. Yeah. Um, but I think you'll see more of those blackouts. And the yeah. result of that is probably more people buying generators. Yeah, no. And Ger- so you, you may dude, end up with- I, I'm going, trust me, man. Yeah, like, off grid. I was always a huge Cummins fanboy. I was like, I'm buying stock like yep. all, of all the Genset companies because that is a really real thing. And you know, it's funny, we were talking about distributed energy a second ago. Uh, what you're also seeing is these huge nat gas turbines that are getting moved into- uh, the oil and gas industry and, you know, being used for like, uh, electric fracks and things yep. of that nature. But I also learned that, you know, peaker plants are buying them, um, because you can spin them up real quick, quick. And, and peak demand. And then it's like, oh, you start thinking about the microgrids that can be built out in the oil field. It's like, oh, Hey, we got this, uh, we got this nat gas generator out here. So when the grid needs power, boom, we can, we can feed it with gas. And, um, yep. so just like, so many cool things that are are happening across the spectrum and for sure um i'm gonna tie this back to metering here watch yeah. how watch how smooth this <laughs> yeah. is is you know talking about building around. the talking about building the microgrid at your house like when it really gets interesting is when you have these bi-directional meters and you can start charging your batteries at the house and then sell back into the grid yep. um which you see happening in, in places like california and tesla's got some partnerships so bringing it back to metering um so you know when did multi-phase kind of give me like a history on multi-phase um metering for liquids like you know you talk about these kind of more traditional uh meters that have a radiation source when yeah. did those come out on the scene? i don't know the exact years but they've been around for a while they've been around for a long time yeah. okay yeah cool. and actually you know some of the guys that that started flowdatics because um, flowdatics has been around for a while it just it's been a lot of its infancy in a lab basically proving the technology works on one phase, two phase, uh, three phase, get it to work on a flow loop. Yeah. And then really just the last year and a half taking it out to the field and, yeah. and actually testing it. But how did you get over to Flowdatics? Um, yeah. Cause you're the CEO now. Yep. Um, but you told me you weren't one of the founders. So 
hired a gun. How did you? Um, yeah, so um, I had worked for a group that had invested in Flowdatix and um, was was very involved in the company. So I was familiar with their story, kind of what they were trying to do. Um, and he had called me kind of late last year, just saying, "Hey, they were looking, you know, looking for a CEO to be a U.S. based guy and help, really help spearhead the push into the U.S. market." Yeah. Um, and and kind of said it more in the frame of, "Do you know anybody?" Yeah. And I kind of took that call, thought about it for a day and said, Hey, I think I'm interested. I think I had, you know, going to mind, spending a lot of time in I feel like the day you know anybody is always a like <laughs> yeah. soft way of like, Hey, do you know Are anybody? You like, yeah, yeah. But you want to do this? Right. And I don't know if that's what it was or not, but that's how it turned <laughs> hey, out. Hey, shoot or shoot, dog. You want yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. So I, you know, knew a lot about their story and had a lot of good relationships in oil and gas with guys that work at operators. Yeah. Um, and so we're at this stage of doing field trials with people, Nice. Um, which I think, you know, from what I've heard talking with operators, traditionally a field trial um, with other companies look like, hey, buy a meter and try it out and let us know how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're more like, hey, we'll, we'll come to your well. It's totally free of cost to you. You let us hook up. We record. We see if the meter works for your well, your conditions. Yeah. And if... If we prove to you that it works, then yeah, let's talk about selling you a meter or renting you a meter, cool. whatever business. So model. y'all are running trials out in the field right now? Correct. That's where y'all are at? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Are you doing this up in Colorado, I assume? Or? So we, we've we done testing in Colorado. We've okay. done testing in Oklahoma. Okay. We've done testing in California. Cool. Um, so obviously we'd love to do something in Texas. Yeah. Uh, we'd love to do something. So if anyone's in, listening and they need a, they, they want to be a pilot. Uh, yeah, 100%. Cool. And uh, I think, you know, like I said, the, the biggest thing is maybe mentally when people think about a pilot they think of hey i gotta spend money and not really get anything out of it yeah and our goal what we've tried to do is make this as painless as low cost to them as possible where yeah we bring our own fill guys we have hoses to hook up the meter to the you know as long as they have nice um some form of connection to their tree or a flow line uh, yeah. we can just pipe in yeah that takes 30 minutes we don't have a nuclear source so you're not having to worry about that for a field trial yeah um so yeah. field trials have been super easy in the past we're yeah. Um, we've been able to make it pretty painless for the operator. Got you. So is the idea of using a multi-phase meter to get rid of the separator and everything? I mean, you're still going to need, you know, some. Yeah. Plumbing, I think but, um, in my mind, there's really three big use cases. So the biggest, maybe like pie in the sky goal for a lot of uh, production guys is, Hey, get me to tankless facilities. Mm. So Every pad, I don't need to have a bunch of separators and tanks. Yeah. They could all feed to a bulk facility. Um, yeah. But you still need to have good measurement of how much oil and gas is you coming know out how of much, yeah. Yeah. Who, who yeah. To, how do you pay your mineral owners? Yeah. Because um, it could be different on each each well on a pad. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you still need good measurement and your, your engineers kind of want to know how much is actually coming out of each well. No, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Right? so <laughs> I was going to say, it's not just mineral owners, but just <laughs> from a basic understanding of yeah. your, your business, you need to know how much you're producing. So, yeah. So yeah. The, that really, to me, like for us is the biggest market opportunity is, Hey, can you get to a world where somebody has their trees, a meter, everything goes to a bulk facility yeah. and you can consolidate into yeah. bigger equipment. So it's essentially, you know, you have one huge tank battery right. facility in the middle of a lease instead of having all of these kind of um, disparate yeah. facilities. Exactly. Just over and there. I think the benefit of that is, you know, cost is probably the biggest one. That's maybe the, the simplest case for someone to think about is, hey, you know, one of these meters costs X amount, a separator and skids and tanks and all that are going to cost 
you know, yeah. however many times yeah. more than the meter. But the other piece of this, um, and it, maybe it matters more in markets like Colorado or New Mexico, but you know, methane monitoring has become mm -hmm. kind of standard place in markets like Colorado. Yeah. And and limiting methane emissions, I think, is something the whole industry is trying to do. Yeah. But when you have all of these pads spread out all over, all have tanks, all have pressure bearing vehicles that the best way to re release pressure is to open a valve and stuff's going to come out when you do that. Yeah. Um, so it's really this idea of like you consolidate to one big facility. That means you only have to monitor one facility. Yeah. Um, sure. And there's less pipe connections. So you don't have those areas that are uh, potential areas that could leak methane. So yeah. I think there's there's a lot of benefits beyond just cost. Yeah, of doing that's it. um that's really interesting. Um, you know, with the uh, it's cool to hear that y'all are getting some um, equipment out in the field and using mm -hmm. it. I'm sure that's really you know exciting uh, to do that and get that going. Um, is oil and gas the the always going to be the target market, or are there other uh, use cases for multi phase uh, meters? You know, like in water municipalities or yeah. something like that, that, that they can be used. So for sure, there's other uses for multi-phase measurement. Um, I think what we're doing and kind of the way our meter works, oil and gas really is the focus. And gotcha. um, we haven't necessarily done any tests outside of oil and gas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If anybody's listening and they've got a water pipe and they want to know if there's also just a question for me i'm just <laughs> like you know this, this is I, how i discover stuff i'm like yeah. i wonder if it has any applications um but there's been guys you know like midstream guys have kind of mentioned hey you know i uh i want a way to know if my if there's liquids in my gas line or there's you know yeah oil in my water line or water yeah. in my oil line yeah can you help us with that so tell me yeah. a little bit about that you know from like the software component and how mm -hmm. y'all are thinking about it you know pretend i'm a production engineer and we have uh one of flowdatix meters out there um you know from the software perspective and the analytical perspective is this something that i can see like in real time is this something that has to be processed and sent back like how how does that look yeah so it's real time so Effectively, we set our meter up next to the tree, and then we run a like an Ethernet cable to a laptop. Okay. And um, there's electronic boards on the meter that do some of the processing. The laptop, it could be an edge device, is doing the rest of the processing. Gotcha. Um, but it's taking data at 500 hertz, computing rates at 20 hertz, so 20 times a second, mm -hmm. and then we're able to show data in basically real time. Oh, wow. uh, so that's flow rates in real time and then also that 3d uh the 3d so do you lapse. have to um you know you run an ethernet cable to it um i'm assuming if you had an edge computing device out there can it push it um to you know where if you're an engineer yeah um, so we've been using office. we've been using starlink rv nice. um just kind of as like it's actually an amazingly cost-effective solution starlink is wild well and, and for for oil and gas it's the perfect solution yeah um you know i think like a Starlink RV unit is 650 bucks. Yeah. The internet is like 140, $150 a month. Yeah. And you usually every well site we've been to, we've gotten at least a couple megs a second up. Yeah. Which is really, I mean, if you need more than that, yeah. You're probably pushing up more data yeah. than you should. Yeah. Um, and our meter does generate a ton of data. We've just kind of figured out the right amount yeah. to Dude, I've to seen Starlink up. in remote places like on ranches and yep. it's like doing like hundred megs. And I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does better. Yeah. Uh, the more remote it is, honestly, I, I yeah. think um, something like, you know, so the, 
the more permanent Starlink installations, you do get a certain amount of guaranteed bandwidth. Oh, do you? Yeah. Starlink RV, I think, is more like you get what's available. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so for those situations, what's available can be dictated by how many other Starlink RV units. Yeah, there could be other people pulling up the, the, the bandwidth. So the further so, yeah. away you go from yeah. other people, I think the better that it works. Oh, man. Um, That's so crazy. You know, yeah. it's crazy to think about because, like, you know, I got in the oil field in 2010. And I mean, I've just been to some remote places where, yep. I mean, just not a chance that you have any communication signals, no cell yep. signal. And, you know, even back when we started this podcast, man, 2018, that wasn't that long ago. And like a common theme was like, oh, yeah, we got a lot of cool technologies, but connectivity issues. Yeah. And like that was a huge bottleneck to yep. being able to deploy anything. And now it's like no one even talks about that anymore. Like it's just not it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, and it's. You know, when I think about us, so like our, uh, when we run our meter, the laptop, we can see results um, real time. And then we also have a cloud portal. Yeah. So a customer can log in and they can see the results basically real time. Cool. Uh, what our flow rates are showing. But even on the site, we can sit there, open up the cloud portal. So data is going, you know, laptop up to the cloud. And then back. Yeah. Back. And we can see it on that portal and basically see it compared to our laptop. And it's, it's basically Pretty, real time. Like almost no latency. And yeah. That's, pretty, that's cool, yeah. man. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Um, so, you know, if someone's listening to this first, if you're all out in Midland, come check out flow data at energy tech night. Um, you know, it's going to be awesome time and, uh, you can come, uh, hang out with, uh, the flow data team out there, but someone wants to get more information on y'all wants to talk to y'all. Where can they find you? Yeah. So I think probably the best way is flowdatix.com. Okay. Um, that's our website there. There's some images of our meter, kind of some videos, the 3d time lapse. Cool. Um, we've recently kind of been working to update all that. So that's probably the best place to, um, learn a little bit more and then they can always reach out to me. Um, cool. so, you know, my cell phone, seven, two, zero. Okay. All right. Yeah. Don't do that. You um, can uh, find them on LinkedIn. Yeah. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. But you can have like all kinds of spammers calling you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool, dude. You know, this is uh, super fascinating, to be honest. I'm going to open up the conversation. I'm like, oh, meters. Like, you know, kinda, it's not the it's most kinda, exciting topic. It's kind of boring, right? Yeah. But that's what I love about this industry is like some really high tech stuff going into really kind of just boring um, applications. But yep. um, it, it's extremely cool. So, dude, thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, y'all. If y'all like this show, Please send it over to a friend. Send it over to an EMP that is uh, looking for some multi-phase metering. You know, if maybe if they um, have some methane tracking and mitigation plans. I already know a few friends that I'll probably send this to. So send it over to all your EMP friends. If you learned something from a guy that's been in oil and gas and solar, I thought that was pretty fascinating. Uh, appreciate y'all sharing it over on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever your favorite social platform is. We'll catch you guys on the next show. Come, come, come.